pit coal, so necessary for the arts and prosperity of Britain, and from her climate, essential to the comfort and enjoyment of her population, is produced by a severity of labour and risk of personal safety to the miner, which the workman of no other occupation is exposed to. The pitman descends 200, 300, and in some instances more than 500 yards into the bowels of the earth, and there traverses subterranean passages, frequently from two to three miles in extent to his work, where, by the glimmering of a small candle or more imperfect lamp, in a space seldom six feet high and oftener three or four, he labours in a stooping posture, sometimes lying on his side for eight or ten hours together in an impure atmosphere, to extract the mineral that above ground is diffusing heat, light, riches and enjoyment. In such a situation, often without a moment's warning, he is overtaken by destruction. Those words introduce the report of the South Shields Committee and herald the birth of the modern approach to system safety. You're listening to DisasterCast, Episode 3. Folks, and welcome to another episode of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. As you might guess from the introduction, our something old this episode will be coal mine disasters, in particular the community response to the Felling Pit and St Hilda Colliery explosions. In something new, we'll discuss a few different approaches to deciding whether a particular amount of risk is acceptable. In something out of the blue, we'll talk about using portable electronic devices on passenger aircraft, and whether they do, in fact, interfere with navigation. The introduction this week comes from the report of the South Shields Committee, one of the earliest attempts to treat safety as a socio-technical problem, with elements of engineering, management education and regulation. It came in response to a groundswell of public opinion that the risk faced by coal miners was unacceptable. One big threat faced by the coal miners was a gaseous mixture called fire damp, which is now known to be mainly methane. Fire damp occurs naturally in many coal mines and accumulates in pockets. It can be ignited by open flames or by sparks from the mining operations. A particularly deadly and not uncommon scenario involved an initial fire damp detonation triggering a much larger coal dust explosion. Slower than death by explosion, but even more nasty, was black damp, the name for any gaseous mixture without enough oxygen to sustain life. 
Black damp could accumulate slowly, when the oxygen was absorbed by coal, or rapidly, when the oxygen was displaced by movement of other gas. Fire and explosions also use up oxygen, of course, so black damp would often claim the survivors of a fire damp accident. Two important disasters occurred at Felling Colliery and St Hilda Colliery. There's not a lot of detail recorded about the Felling Pit disaster, beyond the names of the 92 workers killed in a massive underground explosion. What observers at the time chose to record was the dust covering the town afterwards, the rescuers descending into a burning mine only to be forced back by unbreathable fumes and further explosions, and the procession of 90 coffins when the bodies were finally recovered seven weeks later. Arising from this tragedy was the Society for the Prevention of Accidents in Mines, also known as the Sunderland Society. Unlike modern, top-down public inquiries, this was essentially a grassroots initiative to prevent further tragedies. The Society commissioned Sir Humphrey Davy to investigate the problem of fire damp. In particular, how to provide lighting that would help to burn away the fire damp without creating explosions. There were actually at least three engineers at the time working to provide mine lighting that wouldn't ignite fire damp. They were working independently, but each knew about the work of the others. The result was three new safety lamp designs, and a lot of controversy about who should get the credit. Sir Humphrey Davy got the most applause for his Davy's safety lamp. The other two were the Clanny safety lamp and the Geordie safety lamp by George Stevenson, later to achieve even more fame with his steam locomotive. As you might expect, these technical innovations resulted in a significant increase in the number of mine accidents. Wait, what? A significant increase? Safety is a socio-technical problem, not a simple technical exercise. The safety lamps produced one of the first illustrations of revenge effects in safety. Overconfident in the engineering solution, mine managers reopened pits that had been sealed due to excessive danger and encouraged faster, less cautious excavation of new coal seams. None of the lamps was perfect. In particular, both the Clanny lamp and the Davies lamp became ineffective if they suffered damage. These were hidden failures. The damage didn't stop the lamps giving light, it just stopped them being safe. So the damage wasn't necessarily noticed or fixed. The Felling Colliery disaster was in 1812. The St Hilda's Colliery disaster was in 1839, long after safety lamps were in widespread use. As with the Felling Pit disaster, the impact on the local community was devastating in the short term and constructive in the long term. Determined not to see a repeat of the disaster, the South Shields Committee was formed and charged with an in-depth investigation of the causes and treatment of mine accidents. I urge you to have a look at the South Shields Committee report. Their table of contents shows a maturity of understanding unmatched by some modern industries. It starts with the technical topics of safety lamps and ventilation, but it also considers design for safety, social issues such as child labour and education of mine officers, regulatory approaches and government inspection of mines, 
as well as emergency response and medical treatment after mine accidents. System safety is not a 20th century invention. In many respects, it is a rediscovery of lessons hard learned and too soon forgotten. One of the key types of decisions that safety analysis supports is whether or not a particular amount of risk is acceptable. This may be risk associated with a whole industry, such as nuclear power, a single platform, such as an airliner, or a single hazard, such as cars failing to stop at a level crossing. Everything in life has risk. Even after we've done our best to control a hazard, we always need to ask whether we've done enough. So you'd think, even if people don't agree about whether particular amounts of risk are acceptable, we could at least agree how to ask the question. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. There are a number of different frameworks for arguing about risk acceptance, and in this section I'll try to cover the main approaches. The first, and most subjective approach, is that we could judge risk based on public perception. We have a fairly good understanding of the psychology behind risk decision-making. People prefer risks that they perceive as being voluntary, under their own control, having clear benefits, natural, and familiar. People dislike risks that they perceive as being imposed by outsiders, exotic, unfair, or more likely to affect children. Just because these preferences are emotional, it doesn't make them irrational. They are legitimate value judgments that people make. Unfortunately, they don't help us much with managing risk. If we used public perception as our benchmark, we would be spending our effort managing perception rather than actually improving safety. That would be similar to defending airport security on the grounds that it makes people feel safer, regardless of its actual effectiveness. The extreme case of this was proposed by Senator James Delaney, in what has come to be known as the Delaney Principle. Delaney argued for a total ban on all carcinogens, and was successful in enshrining this principle in US legislation. Such an approach is somewhat similar to trying to prevent high tide via maritime regulations. Slogans such as zero harm or you can't place a value on human life ignore the reality of risk and what they actually do is result in excessive mitigation of some hazards at the expense of failing to deal appropriately with other more serious hazards. So, public perception, not so good as an approach. The second way we could do things is to apply an absolute test. This involves defining some benchmark for what's an acceptable amount of risk and comparing all risks to that one benchmark. An example of an absolute test is the German MEM, or Minimum Endogenous Mortality. MEM says that any new risk shouldn't significantly increase the endogenous mortality, the risk of dying from all causes. For a young person, endogenous mortality is around 1 in 5,000 each year. So MEM is set at 100,000 per year for any new risk. Using MEM is a bit tricky, because instead of working out the risk of hurting anyone, you need to work out the risk of hurting any particular person. 
For example, let's say that my new train exposes train drivers to a 1 in 10,000 risk per year. To make it acceptable, I could make my train 10 times safer, or I could hire more train drivers so that each new driver is exposed for one-tenth of the time. In the United Kingdom, absolute tests are used indirectly to filter risks that are either too high or too low to deserve detailed treatment. Risks above 1 in 10,000 per year are considered so extreme that they are automatically unacceptable. Risks below 1 in a million per year are usually considered so low compared to background risk that they don't deserve detailed consideration. Absolute tests, by the way, are widely used in civil aviation regulation. The third approach is to use a relative test. This involves comparing the risk to other similar risks. A good example of a relative test is the French GAMAB, or GAME, standing for globally at least as good, or globally equivalent. This works very well when replacing an old system with a similar new system. If the old system was safe, and the new system is at least as good, then the new system must also be safe. The logic breaks down when technology changes significantly, or when social expectations change. If we only built systems at least as safe as old ones, then there would be no impetus to make systems safer. The fourth approach is to apply a trade-off test. Rather than treating all risks as equal, a trade-off test compares risks and benefits. Simple trade-off tests are not very useful, since they don't take into account possible mitigations, and because the risk and risks and benefits usually involve different people. The most commonly used trade-off in actual practice is called as low as reasonably practicable, or ALARP, introduced in the United Kingdom by a legal case called Edwards and National Coal Board. ALARP doesn't convert risks and benefits directly, but instead weighs up the costs and benefits of further mitigation. For most risk acceptance tests, the output can be described as saying, this is the amount of remaining risk, and it is acceptable. Under ALARP though, you describe the output by saying, these are the other mitigations that I considered, and this is why I haven't used them. The final approach we could use is called implied acceptability. This is where you follow an accepted process or design, and the risk is assumed to be acceptable because of the way that you did it. In the UK, one of the ways of demonstrating ALARP is by following good practice for the industry you're in. This is a type of implied acceptability. Software safety often uses implied acceptability. Rather than trying to measure software risk, you instead base your safety argument on the processes you used to develop and test the software. There are strengths and weaknesses of all of these tests. I discussed them in detail in a 2007 paper, which I've linked to in the show notes. The bottom line is that the way in which we regulate risk and the way in which we accept risk varies a lot between countries and between industries. That's why we can manage, for example, to have very high risks associated with automobiles and very low risks associated with nuclear power and consider them both to be acceptable. We just apply different benchmarks and different methods when we go about deciding whether we want to tolerate particular risks. 
If you've travelled by commercial passenger jet in the past few years, you've certainly heard the instruction to switch off all electronic devices, as they may interfere with navigation. If you're at all like me, you've probably raised your eyebrows at this. No one seriously believes that everyone switches off all of their devices all of the time. In fact, there's good evidence that people are making phone calls and texting when the devices are supposed to be off. Surely, if the airlines really believed that mobile phones were a problem, they'd be banning them from carry-on luggage and collecting them at security. So can mobile phones actually interfere with navigation? Let's begin with some basic electronics to make sure that everyone's up to speed. A moving electric charge creates a magnetic field. Conversely, a changing magnetic field creates electric current. We rely on these principles to make radios work, but it's very easy to do it accidentally as well. When it happens ex accidentally, we call it electromagnetic interference, or EMI. Important electronic equipment, such as on aircraft, is shielded to minimise the risk of EMI. This shielding isn't perfect, but it has to withstand some pretty strong interference, such as search radars. Not everything is shielded, though. Some things, such as antennae, can't be shielded, because this would stop them doing what they're supposed to do. Antennae are used on aircraft for communication, navigation, and instrument landing. The main worries with electronic devices are the last two of these, navigation and landing. Before GPS was widely used, aircraft relied on things called beacons. A beacon is like a radio lighthouse, and you could navigate by flying from beacon to beacon. Old-fashioned beacons transmitted the same signal in all directions. More modern beacons change the signal depending on the direction they're pointing to help aircraft pinpoint the direction of the beacon. To support landing, highly directional transmitters are used. I'm oversimplifying a little, but one transmitter points above where the aircraft is supposed to be, and the other points below. If the aircraft hears a strong signal from one of the transmitters, it knows that it's either too high or too low, and it can correct its glide path. Even though GPS has taken over a lot of the functions of beacons, they still remain an important backup system. Now, for a portable electronic device to interfere with either beacon navigation or GPS, three things need to be true. Firstly, the device must be radiating enough power. Secondly, the radiation must be on the right frequency. Thirdly, the signal needs to make enough sense to confuse the receiver. Let's talk about these three things in turn. Radio signals decrease in strength with distance. We call this path loss. Path loss includes the signal being absorbed, scattered, and simply getting weaker as it spreads out in an ever-expanding sphere. That means that a close, low-powered source appears much stronger than a distant, high-powered source. The GPS signal strength on the Earth's surface is around 1 by 10 to the minus 16 watts, about the same as looking at a dim light bulb 10,000 miles away. A mobile phone can transmit at up to 1 watt, so has the potential to be far stronger, 
even when the phone is, say, 50 metres away from an antenna. Even devices that aren't intended as transmitters can still emit strong signals. They aren't supposed to, and they are tested to see that they don't, but it isn't that unusual for things to go wrong. In particular, it's easy to damage a device so that it becomes electrically noisy, but still works properly in other ways. Frequency is a bit more tricky. Each part of the electromagnetic spectrum is reserved for different purposes. That's why you can't get an app for your mobile phone to open your garage door, or to listen to air traffic control. They operate on different frequencies. Frequency is not an all-or-nothing thing, though. Each transmitter actually transmits strongly on a band of frequencies, and weakly on nearby frequencies. If you have two transmitters on different frequencies, they don't add their strength together, but they can interact to produce noise on a third frequency. That noise will almost certainly be a lot weaker than the main signals, but it is there. What all this means is that your electronic device probably can't directly interfere with GPS or beacon navigation. Get a bunch of devices together though, and we can't promise that they won't manage to put out a strong enough signal on the wrong frequency. The third thing that we need for danger is for the signal to actually confuse the receiver. For GPS, this is next to impossible, unless you're trying to do it deliberately. GPS signals are highly structured and include long strings of identification digits. The worst that will happen is you'll make the GPS stop working. If you're deliberately trying to make a GPS give a wrong position, it's not actually that hard, but that sort of thing doesn't happen by accident. For beacon navigation, the signals are a lot less complicated, and it is realistic that interference could make the beacon appear to be somewhere else. For landing, all you need to do is accidentally block the too high or too low signals to cause potential problems. Now, I've given you a lot of background, and I still haven't actually given you an answer. Can your personal electronic device interfere with aircraft navigation? So, here's the answer. Probably not. So why won't they let you use it? Because probably not isn't good enough. When the regulator asks Rolls-Royce whether their jet engine is going to explode, they don't say, probably not. They produce incredible amounts of analysis and test evidence, including, by the way, actually detonating explosives inside the engine just to see what happens. When they ask Boeing or Airbus whether the flight controls are going to stop working, they don't say, probably not. They probably spend more money on each line of software code in an aircraft than you paid for your Kindle. No regulator that I'm aware of has banned portable electronic devices. What they've done is asked the airlines for the same quality of evidence that they always ask for when the airline wants to fit a new piece of equipment to a plane. There's a small amount of anecdotal evidence that portable electronic devices have once or twice interfered with beacon navigation. Air travel is so safe and so heavily regulated that this weak evidence demands a strong answer. 
you can't just ignore reports of things going wrong with aircraft. And so the regulators want evidence that electronic devices won't interfere with navigation. The trouble is, there are so many different pieces of electronics that you could carry onto the plane, so the evidence is hard to produce. There are some airlines that are trying to build a case that devices are safe, mainly so that they can provide onboard Wi-Fi or mobile coverage as a selling point. As a result of this, more and more testing and other forms of evidence is accumulating, which is why we're seeing gradual relaxation in the rules. The bottom line is, safety is seldom about what we know will go wrong. It's about anticipating what might go wrong and managing that risk. By banning electronic devices until the risk is properly investigated and understood, safety authorities are erring on the side of caution, which is exactly what we ask and expect them to do. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. A special thank you to those who've tweeted or commented about the show. In particular, thank you to Twitter users Pencilman, Scythor, and SciTechPolitik. Thank you to LinkedIn users Hope Paulson and Mac Johnson. Since this is a new podcast, please do take a moment to provide an iTunes rating or review. It helps other listeners find the show. You can also leave feedback on the website disastercast.co.uk or via email on feedback at disastercast.co.uk. Disastercast is made possible by prize money from I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. The theme tune is A Disaster Anthem by Eden Prayer.